Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. It's the only place in the world that the Pickle Springs Amphipod is found. The peanut sausage in particular, I found the full recipe for. Peanuts were a means to an end for him. Why are there these faux castle ruins, like, on this hill in the Ozarks? Multiple ways of trying to find this. It's like the Steak and Shake take home a sack, uh, (laughs) you know, of burgers. Quite a complex machine, and I had to track down the the patent drawings to use as reference in my, uh, you know, sort of little cartoony drawing. The word weird and I have been homies for a very long time. Ever since I was a kid, it's been liberally used to describe my jokes, faces, and habits of thought. And once I moved to the States, it definitely applied to how I talk. I'm smiling here if you can't tell. So when I learned there's a new graphic novel and comic style book about my now home state called Missouri Weird and Wonderful, I had a hunch it'd be up my alley and yours too. Writer Amanda E. Doyle and illustrator Dan Zetwalk are the St. Louis creators of this colorful compilation of facts, figures, and hand-drawn fun. They're with us in studio now to talk with us about this book. Dan and Amanda, welcome to St. Louis on the Air. Thank you. Hello. So I want to know whose idea it was uh, to make this book and when that idea came about. Who's the weirdo? Is that what you're asking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, it was sort of a happy confluence of events, I think. Um, I have written a lot of books about St. Louis, Missouri, Midwestern topics. And in this kind of work and in your kind of work as well, anytime you're talking to people and looking around, you're kind of always putting things in your back pocket that aren't quite right for what you're doing right now, but you definitely want to get back to them. I had a back pocket full of those things, and, and then I'll let Dan tell his story. Yeah. Yeah, I've drawn a ton of local, um, statewide, and St. Louis stuff, a lot of maps and history stuff. This is all things I'd, I'd love to draw anyways, but never really a, a full-length book. So um, what happened was the we were sort of uh, we were familiar with these other's work, but really it was the publisher who kind of put us together and had the idea and kind of made it happen. Mm-hmm. So there was some matchmaking that <laughs> happened there. So the the target audience for this is kids. Right. What ages are we talking here? Well, that's an interesting question. Is a kid um, going to pick this up and be able to read it and be fascinated by it? Yes, and we hope so. However, do adults also stand and look at it for 30 minutes and flip through and elbow each other and say, do you remember Momo the Missouri Monster? That kind of thing. <laughs> um, the reading level is at about a fourth grade reading level. Okay. So um, if you want your kid to independently look at it, that's where they should be fairly comfortable getting through all of the information. Mm-hmm. And are there certain considerations that you make, Dan, as an illustrator, when you are drawing for younger audiences versus older ones? Or is that a, an artificial construct? Uh, to be honest, I don't think about it very differently. I make work, you know, for, for adults and also work for kids. And But the way I think of the drawings is kind of similar to both. I like to layer lots of information and density of drawing and hide things in. And, you know, that's the way I like to interact with with pictures, and I love to study, um, you know, very detailed, uh, kind of lots of little details and, and things. So I, I don't know, I think adults and kids 
both can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you have a, a nine-year-old. Was your nine-year-old part of the, the <laughs> test audience for these? Absolutely, but his main uh, concern was how many times I could squeeze him into little corners of every image. Okay. So, <laughs> but uh, no, it's great having a, a focus group at home to... Uh, to make sure if something uh, makes sense. Mm-hmm. And Amanda, you've got a, a focus group at home too, right? I do too. I also have a nine-year-old and then I have a teenager so I can immediately find out what's um, boring, which is pretty <laughs> much everything I do at this point for that for that target market. But it's funny when you were talking about layering things, I was just thinking of, you know, when you watch, um, if you watch movies with your kids or your grandkids, you always appreciate the ones that have a little bone for the adults, right? Like just some jokes that make that are funny to you that mm-hmm. won't be to them. And there are some things like that in our book, too. I was just thinking there's an illustration. There's a whole spread of historical events and the Missouri Compromise and the Civil War, obviously, we talk about. And one of my favorite Easter eggs in the book is down at the bottom of um, an earthquake fault, which is also mentioned. Dan has a tiny little Band-Aid down by the Missouri Compromise section. (laughs) Is a kid going to even see that or sort of make that idiomatic leap? Maybe not. But as an adult, you're like, oh, yep, I see what's going on there. Mm -hmm. The history section one was a a tough challenge because, you know, in some ways it's sort of the most serious or maybe some of the most heavy material in the book. But, you know, finding ways to still make connections across time and how things like the New Madrid earthquake of the early 1800s can you know we can still feel its reverberations through through time and all the political stuff that happened in the 1800s later mm-hmm. and into modern day of course yeah i definitely want to return to that <laughs> uh, because there there's a lot to uh-huh. explore on that count but I, I want to start with something that is very basic it is near the beginning of the book and that is sliced bread so i did not know that missouri is where sliced bread got its beginning and that there's an annual celebration for it, Amanda? Absolutely. Well, apparently you haven't been close enough to Chillicothe because they are quite proud of their sliced bread history. Um, It is the location in the United States where the first like commercially available loaf of sliced bread was made. Um, People, you know, made bread at home (laughs) and Mm -hmm. didn't have a bread slicer. But a gentleman invented one. He had a friend who owned a bakery storefront. And just like our convenient meeting of the minds, they got together and sliced bread was born. And they have they have uh, museum exhibits devoted to it. There's a festival. Mm-hmm. And the fun part from that from the visual side was trying to track down, you know, what this contraption looked like. Because not only did it have to slice bread, but it actually had to... Um, seal it in some sort of packaging so that it, you know, because once bread is sliced, it goes then bad what? faster. <laughs> right, right. So it was actually quite a complex machine, and I had to track down the, the patent drawings and to use as reference in my, uh, you know, sort of little cartoony drawing. But, you know, there's a lot that goes into these little cartoony drawings sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so another thing that is big here in Missouri that I um, did not have any exposure to before was floating. Mm. And so the riverways, yeah. the Ozark National Scenic riverways and and float trips, there's one sentence here, or one part that says, keeps the animals and the people who use the rivers from being harmed. And I kept thinking, what would harm the people? (laughs) I think it's more thinking of them as a, so so the the reason that we have these in the book, in the the chapter of inventions and firsts, is because the current and Jack's Fork rivers were the first federally protected riverways in the country, happened in the 60s. Um, And so I think of the protection for the people as keeping the rivers from being polluted, encroached upon, sort of like diverted for other uses, things like that. Okay. Yeah. And this is a, I appreciate the illustration here 
um, there's a diverse group of people floating together, including a dog. <laughs> so is that also something that you, you think about when you're putting people into these illustrations, sort of representing a, a breadth of you know, uh, places they've come from? Of, of course. And, um, you know, Amanda is, is great with that. Uh, I, like to, I like to joke that the book is called Missouri Weird and Wonderful and that uh, Amanda's the wonderful one and I'm the weird one. But <laughs> as, as the project went on, that actually flipped back and forth. But to Amanda's point, um, yeah, you know, I just like to draw fun people that remind me of people in my life or that I've known or that I've been on float trips with, like this extremely sunburned guy on the back of the float raft on yes. this drawing. Sunbird and bald. That's not a good, <laughs> not a good combination. Thing, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, it is. That is something to definitely, I mean, we, we're very mindful of that in the process mm-hmm. of putting the book together. Representation of all kinds, including um, sort of the geographic spread of the book. It's, you know, we're both based in St. Louis. It's, mm-hmm. It'd be really easy to write a whole book about things in St. Louis that are weird and wonderful or Kansas City or, you know, Joplin, any of like metro areas. But to make sure that we had a span of things that would appeal to people all across the state was really important as mm-hmm. well. And there being a breadth of interests too. So recently a friend um, went on a family vacation to Hawaii and he got certified to dive. And then he told me that there is a place where you can dive in Missouri. Dan, can you tell me about that? Yeah, well, there's, you know, a, a lot of the early... Um, you know, at least European settlers of this area were interested in mining. So the whole area sort of down in, in southeast Missouri, um, you know, there's a lot of lead mining and other sort of underground tunneling. And um, the Bone Terre mine, which is still there and can be toured, a big part of it is there's essentially an underground lake that is like a, sort of a perfect area to, you know, for sort of cave scuba diving where there's mm-hmm. still, you can go down and visit sort of shipwrecky sort of things and old uh, construction items that, that used to be used from the hundreds of years ago. Yeah. People Had, people do come from all over to get to either get certified or to dive there. It's mm-hmm. really well known in the dive community. They call their advertising calls it a billion gallon lake. Not sure if they've you know scooped it out, but <laughs> I'll trust them. It's a lot of water, and you have to be open water certified in order to to use it. So it was just a like that is not something I would have guessed would be in the middle of the country. It's quite uh, unusual. And if you go there just on a cave tour, which you can also do, um, they'll take you out on a little flat-bottom boat on the lake, and divers will just pop up next to you out, oh, out, of, wow. out of their dive, and it's a little disconcerting, but okay. but also kind of weird and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> and I will say, weird and wonderful is joined not by and as a conjunction. It is the, the ampersand, right? <laughs> so it makes it one thing. <laughs> now, uh, with water... There's also an interesting creature. There's a wildlife section. And the amphipod at Pickle Springs in St. Genevieve. Uh, What is this thing? uh, And how did you come upon it? Uh, I'm going to have to shout out. I mean, Dan, you may have another story or maybe not. But I will shout out my dear husband, Brian, who kept this fact in his brain from a hike at Pickle Springs several years ago. It, during COVID, we became quite a hiking family, which was not our norm before that. And uh, when I said, hey, I'm working on this book, tell me some weird Missouri things that you think would be in it. And he said, what about that thing at Pickle Springs? And I said, which thing is that? He said, you know, the amphipod is the only place in the world you can find it. So an amphipod, if people don't know, it's a microscopic kind of crustacean little critter. There are lots and lots of different species of them. 
but because of the isolation of the water that it evolved in in Pickle Springs, that's the only place in the world that the Pickle Springs amphipod is found. And my husband read a sign and filed it in his brain. <laughs> Thank you very much. And I had actually never heard of this. Was, this was one that I had never heard of, so I had to do some research. And, you know, my first hope was that, um, you know, that they were somehow related to, to pickles, <laughs> which weren't. I think the springs were just found by maybe a gentleman whose last yeah. name was Pickle, but I still couldn't resist drawing some pickles floating around in this bubbling spring with these tiny... Uh, <laughs> Tiny crustaceans. Tiny critters. Yeah. You think they're a bit briny is yeah. what we're, yes. we're looking at? <laughs> Absolutely. So famous people are also in this book. And George Washington Carver is a name that I have heard a lot since I've moved to Missouri. Growing up in Canada, I did not learn about him. But something that I did not know that is in this book and in the illustration, there is a, um, a pot that is labeled peanut sausage. So, Dan, <laughs> tell me about this peanut sausage and sort of the, the range of inventions that George Washington Carver was able to, to come yeah. up with. Yeah, well, yeah, George Washington Carver, a lot of, you know, a lot of um, at least um, American students could learn about him growing up, about being this famous African-American, uh, born enslaved, who, you know, rose up to become a, quite a well-known inventor and, and scientist, you know, especially about his study with peanuts and but if he he was interested in all kinds of sweet potatoes and and uh, well, lots of things. But just in my research, I found an incredible list of recipes of all the various things that he um, you know tested on making out of peanuts. You know, some food, some like non-food, like some just like sort of industrial lubricants. Lots of you know basically everything you could do with peanuts. But uh, the peanut sausage in particular, I found the full recipe for. I've not actually tried making it, but. There's, a, there's some clues in the drawing about how you would go about it. Okay. <laughs> it's a good use of a crock pot, it looks like. I Can I say something else about George Washington Carver? I, you said, you know, you didn't grow up knowing about him. I, I really didn't either. I mean, I think if you ask kids what they know, they'll say the peanut guy. He was so interesting, and I hope this inspires people to, like, look at more about him because he saw peanuts were a means to an end for him. He was really interested in, like, African-American self-liberation and self-advocacy. And so he was going out. He would take this mobile science lab he had. He built a little cart for himself, and he would go out into farmers' fields um, because farmers are busy. They wouldn't come to him and just open it up and be like, here's all the things you can do. You could own your own land and you could make money and you could pass this down and you could sort of change your own life. Um, all from the humble peanut. So yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> so what we have in this book, it's a nutshell of lots of different things. Another person mentioned here that I had no idea had a connection to Missouri is Langston Hughes. He was born in Joplin, which is really cool. And I went down a rabbit hole regarding Hughes and other Missouri poets. And Amanda, you were talking about some of the background about George Washington Carver that, um, that other people you know, may not know. But were rabbit holes part of what you hoped to inspire with this? Oh, 100%. Because the, um, the sort of hook... I mean, honestly, the hook of the whole book is the art. The art is incredible. And then I try to cram in. It's like taking, you know, medicine with sweets. <laughs> then I cram in some words and hope that they're interesting enough. But these are these are 30 to 50 word blurbs about a variety of topics. So absolutely, I hope that if a kid has to read something about Missouri for school, maybe they'll pick this up and then maybe they'll find something interesting and think, OK, well, I could stand to learn more about that. That mm -hmm. would not be the worst thing. <laughs> <laughs> and did that work its way into some of the, the illustrations that you did, Dan? 
Yeah, absolutely. The the rabbit holes and the visual research and the making connections across time and geography. The Langston Houston was great. I was not um, familiar with his time in Missouri, but he you know he had, he was on his way to New York apparently and was waiting for a for a train to pick him up in St. Louis and was. Um, you know, he wrote about sitting there at the foot of the Eads Bridge in downtown St. Louis waiting for his train, and it's hard not to imagine him seeing the river in front of him and, you know, being inspired in some way about the both the kind of natural surroundings and what was becoming a, a big city at that time. Mm-hmm. I think that's the, you know, too, like people, we claim some people mm-hmm. that maybe other places would like to have more claim on, which is right. fine, but I think it's important to understand Missouri, to understand what a crossroads and a place of moving through this has always been. Mm-hmm. And it affects us, right? It goes. It affects those people. You see it in music and art and literature and all kinds of other disciplines. Their time here affected them, but the legacy of it does affect us, even if where they got known was New York or Chicago. So I think I think we can legitimately have some of those folks. <laughs> we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back. So the historical events, that is something that we talked about briefly earlier. Um, and I noticed that, um, that Dred and Harriet Scott, that there's a difference in the letter case. So Dred Scott is in capitals and, and Harriet is in lowercase. And it made me think about what has happened with the old courthouse. And now there's like more focused attention to Harriet that was announced the beginning of February 2021. And Dan, were there, you know, art-related decisions affected uh, maybe how much information you had at the time um, to how you decided to to approach mm-hmm. um, what you drew there? Yeah, it's tough sometimes with these older stories, you know, from the 19th century and before, because, you know, photography was in its infancy, so there's not a lot of visual reference. You know, there are maybe two or three famous images of, of Dred Scott and his wife Harriet. Um, and of course, there's the, the statue downtown, and there's various artworks that commemorate them. So, you know, I feel like my job as an artist is to is to faithfully, you know, depict these people as they would have looked, but also, you know, be able to use some imagination in terms of what color clothes were they wearing, right? It's so mm-hmm. easy to think of history in black and white because that's what we see. Um, one of my favorite parts about this illustration in particular is the old, you know, we think about the, the old courthouse downtown and we all think of it with the dome and the spire and the, it's green, right? We all think that the courthouse has a green, but really when that courthouse was built, that was a copper dome. So it was it was brown and it was shiny in back then. And actually when Dred Scott, um, you know, and his, and his wife and lawyers filed this case, it actually was not complete. It was still under construction. So it looks quite different than it mm-hmm. looks now. So there are points of history that are not so wonderful, and that is also here in this book. Trail of Tears Park is one of them. What guided the decision to include that, Amanda? I think what's wonderful about many of these difficult points of history that we, um, and we, I think we probably debated more 
in this chapter about like what gets in and what doesn't. And I honestly can't remember what did at this point because I'm so focused on what did. But um, but what's wonderful about these points of history and about Trail of Tears, um, the state park that we have and the, the memory of it, is that we have had all of these cultures and all of these communities in our state. We don't always do a great job of recognizing them, talking about them. Um, and certainly I don't think 45 words in one book is, is going to do it. But I think it's wonderful to realize that these are available to us Mm -hmm. and that you can go lots of places right now in Missouri and find evidence of the many Native cultures that have been here, of the immigrant groups that have been here and left their influence. Um, And so, yeah, certainly they're, they're not meant to fall into the weird. And I hope that it falls into the wonderful for a lot of people. Right, right. I think it goes to what Amanda was saying earlier, too, about the, you know, the movement across the country in our central location as a state, right? There's lots of... Yeah, from from um, ancient ancient times of Clovis era people chasing mastodons to Route 66 to the Trail of Tears. There's been lots of, you know, and just the the gate, the whole gateway to the West aspect of Missouri is really a true, you know, part of our history and uh, it, interesting to think about. And it led, you know, even the 1904 World's Fair I think touches upon a lot of those same issues of people coming and going and how we're representing ourselves, sort of good and bad. Yeah. Right. Now, architecture is a section, and it opens with a, or it includes, that is, a sentence. The kinds of places we construct give clues about what's important to us, what we think is beautiful, and what materials we've learned to work with. And it felt like this is very much applicable to the creation and execution of this book. Um, Not long ago, we did a conversation about uh, an exhibit that is up right now at the Pulitzer um, which is urban archaeology, you know, lost buildings of St. Louis, so there's a connection there. And then, you know, the gateway to the West and then the arch also being an example of one of those things that is really cool, but also it has a, a complicated history. Something that I did not know about and that I'm, I'm really curious about seeing is Haha Tonka. Speaking of um, weird and wonderful, like different <laughs> cultures, Amanda, tell us about Haha Tonka. What does that mean? Um, and have either of you been there? We do you want to start with this one? Because I'll leave the the history part, but I can say that I I went there for the first time actually right when I was making this. We oh. uh, happened to have a family trip, sort of to the Lake of the Ozarks area, and I knew I was going to be working on this part of the book, and I heard about this you know these sort of quote unquote castle ruins for a long time, but I've never seen them in person, so. Um, yeah, definitely made a special uh, special trip to, to see this in sketch in person. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the ruins at Haha Tonka, I feel like this perfectly embodies weird and wonderful. This mm. is a really great example because it's like, why are there these faux castle ruins like on this hill in the Ozarks? And 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 that's cool. It gives you a focal point mm-hmm. when you're hiking, right? Um, this was a this was created entirely by a Kansas City area entrepreneur who. This is kind of a theme, I feel like, in Missouri history. I'm thinking of several other examples. People want to have this connection to antiquity to sort of um, give them a a nobility or a grandeur that they don't feel like they have on their own. So he built a castle to take his family vacations in the summer in. He modeled it on, like, um, uh, ancient European castles that he thought were, you know, everything he wanted to aspire to as a person. And... They went through a fire. It got damaged in the 40s, I believe, and then since then was left in the in the what now is the state park to hike to. But 
You know, I was thinking we were talking before coming on the show. I wrote a book about Tower Grove Park. Henry Shaw paid to have some fake ruins put in Tower Grove Park to hearken to this sort of mythical time of when we were all, you know, nobles or, or whatever they thought they were getting out of yeah. it. So it's kind of a funny impulse in humans. Do you know where the name Haha <laughs> Tonka? Presumably it's some sort of... I assume uh, it's like an Anglo jacked up version of what they thought a native language exactly. sounded like. So it's like a multiple <clears throat> multiple ways of trying to find this. It's like the steak and shake, take right. home a sack, uh, <laughs> you know, of burgers. I think it's a made up fake. So I think I, d- I did see that it has some <clears throat> association with the Osage language. Hmm. So it's um, I, I, like legit in that way. But, you know, like build it and make it look wrecked. And this is what's going to be in the middle of, of the forest. And also, this is our ancient Osage castle. You know, right, like, what are right. we doing? I, it's it's a strange, <laughs> people love the mashup. That's all I can say. Weird and wonderful, as you said. So we can't go too much further without talking about food. So burnt ends. Yeah, baby. I did not know <laughs> that burnt ends has a, a connection to St. Louis. Uh, I'm Kansas sorry. City specifically. With, uh, I'm sorry. I just made a big mistake. <laughs> I know. I have to be very cautious. This has been a, a big part of working on this project. That I'm such a St. Louis and that I, d- I don't want to give, I don't want to be accused of giving short shrift to any other, right. any other city, Kansas City especially. Well, and I did have them in Kansas City. So yeah. I, I hope that I will not be skewered too, too awfully for that. Um, is burnt end something that you have enjoyed, Amanda, in the time that you've lived here? I mean, again, what is it that that got that into this book? Um, Well, I'm no longer a meat eater, but I have, yes, um, partaken of the burnt end in my time. And I think we're talking about iconic foods of Missouri, like Kansas City barbecue. I know we could get in a war. There's probably factions out there right now railing at their radios. But um, Kansas City barbecue is iconic. And particularly burnt ends, I think, are such a... um, you can't just find them anywhere. Like you can find ribs a lot of places, even though the preparation will differ. You can find a pulled pork sandwich, but burn-ins is kind of a kind of a thing that is something you have to seek out. Mm-hmm. And it's you know it's one of the, it's another one of these sort of uh, you know foods with very humble origins, right? Burn-in used to be these like fatty scraps that were cut off the brisket and moved over to the side of the of the, um, of the grill, but then you know they would get they would get so burnt and crispy, and those juices would become so caramelized that People would just start, you know, they would throw in a few with the with your real order, and they beca- they were they were so beloved that they become sort of the main attraction. I mean, right, right. And we just had a um, conversation about pork steak and mm. some controversy there. So <laughs> you're really you... wading into it. What, what's I know. going on? <laughs> well, so being in the middle of the country, and then uh, the kinds of things that come out of here because of the people who who live here. Cashew chicken, I had heard, was invented in Springfield, Missouri. But it occurred to me that uh, Springfield is also where The Simpsons takes place. And that could be anywhere (laughs) in the country. So as far as like an export within the United States, um, I mean, is cashew chicken something that is... That's eaten around the country, Dan. Do you know? I believe. I believe yes, so. I believe it abso- it's. It is. And it absolutely is. Yeah, you can find it if you're in a like a Americanized Chinese American restaurant. Cashew chicken is is available. There's actually a, an excellent documentary you can look up about the Springfield origins of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and my f- it, yeah. my favorite my favorite part of that series. I, if you even flip through the book cursely, you'll know you'll see that I have a love for signs and old signs, roadside signs, motel signs, but the. the 
the old uh, the, the sign for that restaurant where cashew chicken was sort of popularized is still there in some form, but getting to draw that was one of my favorite parts. Yeah. <laughs> so oddities and hidden gems. I think I noticed that the two of you are on that page. Is that right? <laughs> We are. Yes. Dan put us in there. It was very <laughs> exciting. I was inspired by Amanda. This is one. This is, was a moment toward the end of the book where Amanda sort of breaks the fourth wall and starts talking directly to the reader, <laughs> and I, I couldn't resist actually uh, including us in the the oddities section. Mm-hmm. And my my kids saw me before I did. I was just so taken. There's so much for your eye to do looking at these spreads. And she said, "Oh my gosh, it's you and Dan." I was like, "Oh, there we are." Yes. <laughs> and I'm just now seeing. Are those red hot ripplets? On the. They are. That's okay. another ex- another example of you know we didn't have room to include all of our favorite foods or other things. So yeah. like, when ha- when I had the opportunity to to sneak them in otherwise, mm-hmm. of course. And we also cannot let this segment go without talking about one of the oddities and hidden gems. And this is the telephone museum, and there is a a hamburger phone in the illustration. Did you have a hamburger phone? Dad? <laughs> no, I did not. But I, I love that telephone museum. I love museums in general, but that's one of, I think, a place that not even people who've been around for a long time know there's a little telephone museum down in Jefferson Barracks, mm-hmm. South uh, South County, St. Louis. And it's one of many. They Thousands of every novelty phone you can think of or that your friends had growing up, they have one there. Did but, you have one? What did you have? Uh, I had like the clear phone where you could see all the wiring and stuff. I inside. also had the clear phone. <laughs> We're <laughs> the same vintage. Yep. There's another, there's a, the, when I was working on this page back in the summer, it was early in the baseball season when the, the, Card- the Cardinals had fleeting moments of happiness this year. And one of their sort of team memes was they were, they had a hamburger, cheeseburger phone in the dugout that they were supposedly called to order a home run. So didn't get to use it very okay. much this year. So it was a double, it was an extreme Easter egg for fans of the St. Louis Cardinals of 2020, early 2023 summer. <laughs> so... You know, brevity and breadth, that's something, you know, it feels like you are trying to catch in both of these. How did you face the challenge of whittling down to what would fit into a book like this, Amanda? Um, Having sort of the framework of chapters at the beginning helped a lot because I think we both came into it with like just loads of things we wanted to include. But that's kind of like, okay, well, where does that fit? So that, that helped give it a little bit of structure. And then again, looking to that geographic spread, I think looking sort of historically and also thinking of every different kind of, you know, kid reader, maybe like kids, maybe kids aren't into sports, traditional sports. So what can we put in there for them? Maybe there's a kid who's like really geeked out on history. What can we put in there for that kid? Mm -hmm. I think finding that mix of things that you're going to be familiar with, but also totally unfamiliar with. And then hopefully even the familiar things we've, you know showing them from a slightly different perspective, either visually or in, or in the writing that, that makes you, you know, think more about their uh, lives and yeah. legacies. And as we close, I want to talk about what's at the end of the book, which is a scavenger hunt. So were there reasons other than fun, Dan, that I, that is incorporated <laughs> into this volume? Well, as an artist, I have a dream of, you know, everyone like pouring over these pages for hours and hours and seeing all the fun little details I put in and <laughs> having sort of an indexed uh, scavenger hunt of things that we couldn't mention by name, but that are embedded in these images. So that's one part of it. But then I like to also think of this book as a real life scavenger hunt that you could take with you on a road trip. Are you going to Kansas City? Where are some fun places to pull off and, and check out? That kind of thing. So as I look at this, I was also wondering, have you timed it? 
how fast people can go through and find all of these things? Is that a, an idea for an event, perhaps? That is a good idea for an event. Absolutely. I Yes, that's going on the long list for sure. We'll hide the, uh, we do have some hints on that page. We'll hide the hints for the contest. Oh, okay. yeah. I see a lot of possibilities with that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Amanda E. Joyle is the author of nine books. Many are St. Louis-focused, and Dan Zetwalk is a cartoonist, information designer, and printmaker in St. Louis. Amanda and Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks so much. This episode was produced by Elaine Shaw. With Aula Kuziz. Audio engineering by Emily Woodbury. And podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.